It's time for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Doug is a certified financial planner, providing you with a personal financial hotline to answer your questions about tax planning, investments, retirement planning, estate planning, and education planning. Doug and Linda are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing financial and investment services since 1983. Doug and Linda will be answering your questions on WPTF's phone lines anytime during the next hour. Call 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Call toll-free 1-800-662-7979. And for mobile phones, it's star 680. And now, Doug and Linda Lewis and Money Matters. Hello there, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters with Doug and Linda has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all of your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 20 years. And again, with me as usual tonight is my wife, Linda, who works with me in our firm, Lewis Financial Management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. Doug and I are the owners of Lewis Financial Management, a registered investment advisory firm in Raleigh, providing investment in financial advice since 1983. For over 20 years, we've been answering your questions on the WPTF phone lines. They are your questions and our answers. So sit back and enjoy, or if you're free, call us tonight on the open lines. We'll take your calls anytime during the next hour. You're free to call in and ask any financial question about your own personal financial planning. Call us at 860-9783. That's 860-WPDF. Or you can call us toll-free long distance at 1-800-662-7979. Well, financial planning is everyone's business, and still for most folks, money matters are just a big puzzle. Folks have questions about planning for retirement, planning for a child's college education. They don't know the difference between financial planning and money management. They want to know a lot these days. They want to know what's a mutual fund, what's a limited partnership, what's a REIT, What's a will? What's a living will? And yes, it really can confuse you. But you're not alone. Because in a world crowded with new investments, changing tax laws, rapidly evolving insurance products, and volatile economic cycles, more and more people are looking for clear direction in their financial lives. And yet, unfortunately, the busier and the more successful they are, the less time they have to sort out their financial affairs. And people are asking, is there any solution? Well, yes, Doug, there certainly is a solution. Out of this increasingly complicated financial environment has come a new breed of professionals that are trying to solve people's money puzzles. And that's the Certified Financial Planner. It's the certified financial planner who offers something that people don't get from the traditional stockbroker, money manager, accountant, insurance agent, or bank trust officer. And that's a way to consolidate all aspects of people's financial affairs into one financial plan. It's the certified financial planner who knows how to pull together all six areas of a client's financial life. Doug, I think for many people, the first area of financial planning is cash flow planning with questions about their emergency fund, their mortgage, their credit cards, and reducing their debt. Well, yes, Linda, and yet for many people, the second area of financial planning is retirement planning. Those who are working want to know how to compute what they'll need to live on during retirement. 
and how much they should be saving for retirement. They want to know what investments they should choose from the choices in their company's 401k plan. Others are retiring and have received a lump sum payout option from their company's retirement plan, and they want to know, should they take it, and if so, how should they invest it? Well, Doug, the third area of financial planning that must be dealt with is estate planning. For most people, over their working years, their estate has grown. How can they reduce their estate taxes? And they wonder, are their simple wills sufficient, or maybe they should be considering the complicated world of trusts? If that's the third area, Linda, the fourth area of financial planning cannot be overlooked. This is tax planning. People are interested in both tax reduction strategies and tax reduction investments. Home mortgage interest, charitable giving, tax shelters, tax-free bonds, questions about capital gains taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and how to sell real estate tax-free using trusts. What a confusion. Well, Doug, we can't forget the fifth area of financial planning, which is insurance planning. How much life insurance does a family really need? Do they have too little insurance or maybe too much insurance? Should they have whole life, term, or universal? Should they have long-term nursing care coverage? You're right, Lynn. And, of course, the sixth and most important area of financial planning is investment planning. Here, the questions never stop. What's the best way to diversify my investments? Is now a safe time to invest in stocks? What about bonds? What kind of stock mutual funds? Bond mutual funds? Equipment leasing partnerships? REITs? CDs? Gold? Annuities? So, Doug, it seems that at last it's time for people to understand that a certified financial planner is really the only one who can tie together all six parts of their financial puzzle. And to you out there listening, if you've got a question on your mind about cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, tax planning, insurance, or investments, call us now on the open lines and we'll answer your financial planning questions. Those numbers to call are 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. Out-of-towners, call us toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. And if you just want to sit back and listen to the callers through the years, welcome to the show. Investments offered through HBEC, Inc., FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Lewis Financial Management and HBEC and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Well, good evening, Deborah. You're with us again this evening. Nice to have you aboard. I am. Thank you, Doug, Linda. Yeah, well, it's a hot day out here, so you paid a big sacrifice to come into a, a studio and get out from the heat. I did, I did, but it's worth it. It's uh, It's been a strange week with a lot of heat coming on us and a lot of ups and downs in the market, a lot of ups and downs in a lot of unknown areas, but I think we've got a lot to talk about tonight. I, we do, and during the week, I did pull out a few articles that I thought would be timely, and mm. one of them uh, was from the Wall Street Journal, and it was talking about, or actually the title itself was, The Bullish Case for the U.S. Economy. Who... Who was that article written, or who did it reference? Do you remember anything? It was. It was was an opinion article from the Wall Street Journal, and it was an interview uh, between the the interviewer uh, was uh, James Freeman, and he was interviewing BlackRock's chief equity strategist, Bob Dahl. Oh, Bob Dahl. Yeah, he is. uh, He's 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 a pretty well-known guy in investment circles, and that's because. BlackRock really, right now, is the world's largest money manager. 
So what was the uh, what was the view that uh, Mr. Dahl was taking? Well, surprisingly, he was cautiously optimistic, and he said that uh, he was, in regard to the long-term bullishness uh, on American companies and U.S. competitiveness, that was the focus of the article. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I'm also bullish on the U.S. economy and on the long-term aspects of U.S. companies. And I believe that uh, Warren Buffett feels the same. Very interesting, though, because this past week we did have a lot of, uh, uh, you might say, bad news reports and so forth. People were frightened. The market had a couple of big, heavy down days. But I'm glad to see that uh, he feels the same way I do, is that there is a positive aspect coming with regard to the U.S. economy. I, what was what was his, his 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 posture or his position? Why did he feel this way? Well, he said that over the next twenty years, the U.S. workforce is going to grow by about eleven percent, and that Europe's is going to fall by five, and Japan's is going to fall by seventeen percent. So, what he then is making his bullishness based on is actual population growth, tying it to productivity. I like that. Uh, he be- said that was ultimately how we can judge, you know, the number of noses, I think I recall him saying. <laughs> well, it makes sense. More noses, more and more boxes of Kleenex are right. going to be sold, well, you know. <laughs> in addition to future employees of companies. That's right. That's right. Of so the workforce. Th- well, that makes sense. And I guess he probably also referenced the fact that we've got higher immigration coming in than European countries. Yes, he did make, he did talk about that to some great detail that uh, we have the highest number of people immigrating to to our country, higher than, of course, Japan and other places in Europe. <clears throat> so that's his basic posture of why he is so bullish. I'm bullish also for other reasons, basically on the reports of companies that are actually uh, profitable. And the profits are there. The U.S. equity market is probably the best of all the U.S. Uh, world markets. I think... The the difference is that the public gets confused and they think that the stock market in the U.S. and the economy in the U.S. should be moving in lockstep, but actually they're very different types of animals. It used to be when the U.S. economy growth went a certain direction, so did the stock market. But now with uh, U.S. companies making their profits from overseas, sales and vice versa, they don't necessarily go in lockstep, and therefore the stock market and the economy are very different animals. I like his view. I like his bullishness. I keep hearing it from all of the uh, the analysts that I respect and that I meet with. Uh, they give me the same feeling that there is long-term growth, and it's not a matter of whether we're going to have huge growth. It's that we're still growing, and companies are Profitable, maybe less profitable than last quarter, but still profitable and projecting more profitability in the coming quarters. Well, he, like a lot of people, thinks that inflation is going to rise. How do you feel about that when people talk about inflation and how high it may rise and those fears that are undermining some of the you know articles and and uh, people who are speaking on TV and in newspapers? Inflation is going to be higher, I believe. But the Fed, I don't think, will let inflation get out of hand. So I don't think it's a huge problem that we're facing. We will have healthy inflation. The Fed, I believe, will not let 
inflation get out of hand. And I believe that's his posture also. Yes, he he did say that he thought that uh, the government would do a lot to restrict any wild, crazy runs on inflation. Well, that's good. That's good to know because uh, he is uh, he's definitely he's a, a person to be adhered to. Uh, they are the world's largest money manager. That's BlackRock. And he is the chief equity strategist for BlackRock. Very interesting. Thanks, Deborah. Any other articles you noticed? Uh, there was another article. Um, and if you have any questions tonight, do please give us a call at 1-800-662-7979. And we'd love to hear your questions. Well, in regard to other articles, there was a very interesting article, maybe not too deep, but it was about um, what I'm sure is on a lot of people's minds, which is what to do in regard to a rollover. You know, it was about seven years ago, Deborah, that the stock brokerage, the brokerage firms around the U.S. were sending out a lot of alerts to their stockbrokers telling them that within the next 10 years there was going to be this massive roll of money as people moved into retirement and left employment and so forth. And so I am sure that the article was focusing on the fact that right now, somewhere in the next couple of years, there'll probably be about $1 trillion rolled over from uh, 401k plans of employers into uh, IRAs, and I'm sure that the stock brokerage world would love to capture that account. Does that really reflect that there are going to be a huge amount of people who are in that baby boomer demographic who are going to be retiring mm-hmm. and having to consider, what do I do with this amount of money that I've set aside in my 401k? What am I allowed to do? What are my options? Yeah, and I, of course, you're going to see a lot of uh, solicitations a lot of invitations to come to seminars telling you what you can do. Here's what you can do. Uh, come to us. We can help you. And I'm sure that the article referenced some of, some of the uh, strategies that are it being did. used. It did. <laughs> it did. Some good, some bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A uh, lot of, yeah, the, the big financial services companies, the big brokerage firms, I'm sure that they are sending out massive invitations to, uh, to, Listen to them. It's basically a sales pitch. You right. do have to be uh, to worry. Right. Uh, what, what, what were some of the things in the article that you saw? Well, I liked its focus on what were some of the good reasons to roll your money into a new IRA account, um, meaning from a 401k at your employer. And um, one of the reasons that they gave was that you may want a clean break from your old company. What do you feel about that? Well, number one, I, I think that's true. I like that. That logic is very good. Your 401k plan, all the years you've worked there, technically has been under the control of your employer. And there have been some cases and some exposés and some disasters of employers who have raided the 401ks or who have misused them and so forth. So you have not been able as an employee when you reach retirement you have not been able to do any way anything about it except choose the investments in it. In other words, you couldn't take it out yourself and put it in your own retirement plan. So the law says that as soon as you retire, you have the right to take that money from your 401k and put it into your own IRA account. And so you're making a clean break from your old company and now they have nothing to do 
with your money, and it's a tax-free move. I like that strategy. That, I mean, that, that logic, that's definitely true. You want to make a clean break? Yes. Okay. Uh, can that clean break happen before you're 59 and a half? Or yes, is- yes, it can. It can be made if you terminate employment. You can still do a rollover from your old employer's 401k into your own IRA. Yes, you can. Another reason that they did say that you might be interested in rolling uh, out of your 401k is that you may not like your 401k investment options. That's and- an excellent <laughs> reason. That's exactly right. I'm sure they built that into a lot of the, uh, the, the the sales pitch that goes because it's true. Your 401k may only give you 10 or 15 different investment choices. If it's in an IRA and you do it properly, you may have thousands of investment Open choices. Open to the world of investments. That's right. Okay. Another reason that they did list was that you may want to consolidate several retirement accounts into one. Now, this is very crucial, and this is a very good reason also, because when you turn 70 and a half, you hit that magical age, which the Internal Revenue Service says requires an RMD, or a required minimum distribution. But the RMD computation, according to the IRS, is based upon all of your retirement monies, they don't look at, well, this IRA or this 401k or this account and so forth. So that'd be a great reason to combine several retirement plans. Uh, I think you should, you should never come into age 70 and a half and not have all of your retirement monies in one retirement custodial account. Not one investment, but one IRA account so that you avoid the huge tax penalty if you miss it. And that tax penalty is 50%. So that's a very good reason. You should only have one IRA account for all of your different retirement plans. The one reason that they gave that I liked the best was that you may be someone who feels like you need help in managing your accounts. And for me, I thought that was the best reason of all to roll out. Well, I would agree with that, except for the fact that that might be like the fox saying to the chickens, let me help you decide how you're going to get across this river here. If the brokerage firm is sending you the sales letter or the sales pitch or the letter with the sales pitch in it saying, would you like some help? Then you have to be very careful because there are probably a lot of other things that those people who send you that letter or that invitation to do a rollover don't want you to know. There may be some things they don't tell you. Okay, well, there's a good and a bad to everything. That's right, that's right. (laughs) I like your analogy. (laughs) Uh, Well, they did say that many folks who do want to roll over their money um, are often told some very important things and and some people don't tell them. So the focus of the article really was that last point, which is you need to know who's giving you the advice and from where their intent is coming. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the typical omission that they don't tell you in these letters from the brokerage firms. The first thing they don't tell you is that I am not acting in your best interest, Mr. Client. In other words, typically the people who send these letters and call you to discuss rolling over your workplace plan are sales representatives and brokers, but registered representatives of brokerage firms are not fiduciaries. In other words, a fiduciary is a person who by law must put your interest ahead of his own. But these representatives of the brokerage firms are not regulated that way. They're not required at all because they are not required to act 
in your best interest. And so they're simply regulated by what's called the suitability rule, meaning uh, uh, the investments they talk to you about are suitable for you. But they don't have to tell you that the commissions are huge or that uh, it might be a suitable investment, but still it's not the best thing for your overall goal. So they don't tell you that in these letters, that they are not acting in your best interest. You should get help. I agree. But you should get help from a fee-based certified financial planner, one who is not driven to sell a product to you and get a commission, but rather one who is charging you for the advice that, that you're getting, the hourly fee or act, yeah, acting in, and mm-hmm. one who is regulated as a fiduciary. Yes, this is something I hear you talk a lot about as to whether or not someone is a fiduciary and whether or not someone isn't a fiduciary and what those intricacies are. Right, and I think that's very important. You don't have to have only two choices. Number one, leave it at the old 401k plan with your employer, or number two, send it over to a brokerage firm where a person is not a fiduciary. Well, it sounds like the person who does roll it over, they'll always open themselves up to more choices, and that probably is the bottom line. You won't be limited to just your employer's retirement plan. That is the positive, yes. Well, good. And if you have any questions, please do give us a call at 860-WPTF, 860-9783, or our toll-free number at 800-662-7979. Hi, Patrick. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Hi, Doug. Um, my grandmother uh, bought a couple of years ago a nursing home, and they pay, they've been paying off the debt and everything for a long time. She's built the business, and she is working right now on trying to lower her assets because it is in the millions, and she's really, really worried about the inheritance tax. Um, she doesn't want it to be sold when she dies to pay off the inheritance tax. Right. Any tests on that, or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are some things she can do. Depending, there's is there debt on the property? Yes. There's mortgage debt on the property. Yes. What's her health? Uh, it's it's good now. Well, she really needs to meet with a financial planner and do estate planning. Right. Uh, two ways to do that. One is the possibility of a testamentary charitable remainder unit trust. The testamentary CRT will work and insurance to go ahead and provide enough uh, liquidity to pay the income taxes if she doesn't go that way. But you tie the two together with a wealth replacement trust and a wealth preservation trust, uh, and she could get herself down to a zero estate tax. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. It's complicated when you've got a business, but it can be done. But yeah, have, have, let Linda know about that because that's a very sophisticated strategy using the Wealth Replacement Trust with a business, two-generation trust, and uh, a testamentary trust. But it can be done. If you'll call me at the office, uh, our number is 919-872-7000 in Raleigh, and I'll be happy to send you some information. Well, thank you very much. Take care, Patrick. Thanks for calling. All right. Bye-bye now. If you have a money matter that you'd like to discuss with Doug, call in locally right now at 860-9783. That's 860-WPTF. And if you're long distance, it's toll-free at 800-662-7979 or star 680 on your car phones. Well, Doug, another article that did catch my eye was the was called Pension Plans for the Rest of Us. Now, that's interesting. I wonder, <laughs> what was that one? That Was uh, was that a Wall Street Journal article or was it that financial? Was. It, was, it was in the journal? 
Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I'm almost positive it was in the journal. Um, its main theme was the new retirement income planning services, withdrawal pains. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, this is, this is very interesting. I think, um, I have a real problem with this whole thing, but you know, Debs, in, in recent months, companies like Fidelity and Charles Schwab and Financial Engines have all started to introduce a type of automated service for investors that can convert their savings into a reliable stream of retirement income. Uh, it is, uh, it's it's really tricky. It's sort of it's all done on numbers, and these are little uh, programs that they will offer you that will tell you how to go ahead and just have an income stream that will flow out to you from your retirement monies. But I, I have a real problem with this whole thing because basically you're trying there to move into a do-it-yourself mode, and quite frankly, if I found out that uh, my brother had three different kinds of cancer. I don't think I would want him to do a do-it-yourself <laughs> treatment of himself and of everything. <laughs> no, he'd want to go to someone who probably, you know, this, so this whole thing of you can do it yourself uh, is really, I don't know, it's what really... Is- what is the do-it-yourself of? Is it to figure uh, what your income needs would be or what your income that would be generated would be? Okay, what it's all about is the withdrawal. It's, okay, you've worked all your life, and now comes the time to retire, and you've accumulated, let's say, uh, uh, $1.5 million in different accounts. And then uh, you can fill in a little form that says, here's how much your living expenses are and here's how much your Social Security is and so forth. And then they can go ahead and uh, uh, put you on the phone with someone that will uh, get some more information from you, plug it in. In Fidelity's case, I think they recommend that you buy a couple of annuities uh, and then there'll be a projection. And uh, I think uh, the one case that I saw, Fidelity projected that – You'd end up, if everything worked out just the way that the program said, yeah, that it was intended to, (laughs) you're going to end up with $4 million after 30 years. And then I think the other one uh, was financial engines. Uh, Their same numbers in the same comparative case, if I recall correctly, said if everything goes according to plan, then... Uh, you're going to end up at age 85 and be able to last for another six or seven years. Oh, well, <laughs> Big difference between $4 million right. and have enough to live and then right. go broke at the end of six or seven years. And then I think there was another one that was done by, uh, I think it's called the Guide Spending Program, Guide Choice or something like that. And there's their comparison, instead of $4 million, was $2 million. I mean, and then Charles Schwab has one coming out. Uh, these are all designed to let you plug in the numbers and do it yourself. But unfortunately, you need some help with a person. You need to see a fee-based certified financial planner that will walk you through your world and not just plug in numbers and have something spit out. That's not what uh, withdrawals are all about. In theory, according to my view, you should have a capital base of investments that's able to support you at your desired lifestyle, producing a monthly income, and still not depleting your investment portfolio. Uh, anything 
that says we can do it without the help of a human, I think is an accident waiting to happen. It probably has a lot of holes in it, similar to required minimum distributions. I'm sure that it's also got a lot of fine print that says we don't guarantee anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is what most do-it-yourself programs are all right, about. Right. So if you're responsible for the input, you may not get good output. <laughs> uh, I think I remember somebody once said, it's all a matter of Geico. Geico, what's that? <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> garbage input, garbage yeah. outflow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think um, if anyone out there is listening and would like to give us a call about their retirement plan or their questions, uh, please give us a call at 860-WPTF, 860-9783, or 800-662-7979. Let's take another call, Doug. Mary Ann, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Can you, on a trust, designate, say, like at the end of a year, that a certain amount of the trust be given to the charity at the end of a year on a yearly basis? Can you do that? Yes. As a matter of fact, what uh, the, the key are the six players of the Charitable Remainder Section 664 Trust. The donor, which in this case I guess would be yourself, right? Yes. And if you set up such a trust, you want to name yourself as the trustee, and you want to give yourself certain powers, and that would be one of the powers that you would give yourself in the trust document, the power to take out part of either the principal or the income from your trust to distribute to charities during your lifetime at the end of each year. Or you could say, which is the more common way, let's wait until my death. In the meantime, I want it all to grow as a retirement plan for me and pay me income, and then there'll be a bigger gift at the rear end for the charity. You can do it either way. I have been listening to you for a number of weeks and have just been intrigued by some of the information that you've shared on ways that um, we fail to reap the benefits of uh, interest. Who was that? Who was that movie actor, Linda, who said, "Make my day"? She just made my day. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne. <laughs> I'm glad someone out there is listening. <laughs> well, it, it's um, it's something that I've reached the time in my life where I realize I have not been wise in uh, controlling my money. I always felt like I really didn't have an estate because it was more or less just very little in savings, and I now realizing that I would have had more money if I had just controlled it in a more logical way. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, my question to you was, in paying tithing to my church each week or each month, I could take the 10% of my income and put it in the charitable trust, mm-hmm. which could be to my church, uh-huh. and uh, I would draw an interest off of that, and then at the end of each year, in order to pay my tithing on a yearly basis, at the end of each year, I could designate it that this amount of that money went to that church. But in the meantime, I would be building that money through the year and receiving an interest back from it. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly correct. You can do it any way that you want. The percentages, you want to, it, it's sort of like chickens and eggs. The chicken has to be big enough to produce the kind of eggs we want. But... The classic way to do what you're talking about would be maybe to, let's say a person has, uh, oh, I can think of so many different types of things that Linda and I have done in the way of these types of trusts for clients. That number at the office, by the way, is 919 Let's say a person happens to have a piece of real estate 
that they would like after they have passed away, they would like it maybe to go to some charitable cause. All right. Well, they can give this real estate to this charitable trust. The charitable trust can sell it 100% tax-free and avoid all the capital gain. Let's say now maybe there's a hundred or $200,000 of cash in this charitable trust. It can then be reinvested by the trustee, namely yourself, into mutual funds that are producing a nice income. The charitable trust pays you income through the year, and the trustee is given the right at the end of the year to take whatever percentage he or she chooses and make that as a distribution to one or more of the charities, such as the church tithing that you're talking about. There's a tremendous amount of interest lost that people could acquire through handling their money in just a different fashion from what they understand. The interest on that, on 10% of your income over a period of time, would be quite a nice little saving. It's very nice. You know, the it's, it's the concept of social capital. Many people don't understand. They think of taxes as this horrible thing that they're facing. But taxes isn't going to a person. Taxes is going to help certain parts of society theoretically. And our capital is composed of both what we own for our own consumption and what we owe to society. That part that we owe to society is called social capital. That's the part you can't keep. That's the part that you can't keep. But we've discovered a way that you can control it. Right. Because basically what happens, Marianne, is uh, folks that implement this strategy can now find a way to increase their income. You can increase your income. You can also, along the way, reduce your taxes. You can empower your family. You can also impact your community and perpetuate your values. All by learning the principles of social capital. But most people simply just write a check to the IRS each year and don't even realize that they have the power to direct it to do what they want to do for society. In a financial statement, would the money in the charitable trust show up as an asset? No. Well, that's a very good question. The principal does not, but the income does. The income is a transferable asset. You can actually assign your interest in that income stream over. Now, let me say this. It's used in both ways. I have seen clients going through divorce who want to make sure that it is not able to be assigned and not touchable. And many people use it to avoid potential litigation issues and liability issues. On the other hand, I know others, which is more common, to where they want it to be seen as an income stream and they want it to be seen as a valued asset on their financial statement. And yes, it is. It's the discounted future value of basically picture... You've got a bunch of chickens in chicken houses, and you're going to live 30 years. You've got to figure out how many eggs are those chickens going to lay over the next 30 years and then discount them back to present value. You know, how many chickens would it take today to lay all those eggs in one year? And that's the value of the discounted income stream on your financial statement. Thank you. I really enjoy your program, and I appreciate the information. Well, thank you for calling, Marianne. I hope we can help you. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Thank you. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis, and we're taking your calls at 680-WPTF. So if you've got a question, call us at 860-9783. If you're out of town, it is toll-free at 1-800-662-7979. Cellular callers, it is star 680. 
You know, Lynn, I really enjoyed uh, her comments. And the only thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you can also use this same powerful charitable trust strategy if you're selling a business and you're facing the capital gains tax on a business, you can also avoid 100% of the capital gains taxes on the sale of a business using the same strategy, Lynn. So for those of our listeners out there, uh, it is very powerful. You need to do it right, but it's a wonderful strategy. Well, Deborah, we've been talking uh, throughout the evening about investment planning, about the future of the economy about IRA rollover and retirement planning. Uh, What's new in the world of insurance planning? Well, there was an article that uh, specifically was talking about the different kinds of insurance, the different kinds of needs that those different purchases uh, require, or meet, I should say. Um, The first one was coming to term. Term insurance can be a strategic tool in the financial planning arsenal. You know, I like that term, (laughs) no pun intended, (laughs) uh, strategic tool, because term insurance is a very powerful uh, weapon to deal with risk if you know how to do it. Uh, It's it's sort of unfortunate that people just look at it as the cheapest type of insurance to get, which is true, but that's not the way that you, you, you use it. Most people... Purchase the popular inexpensive life insurance, which is term insurance, as a way to lessen the financial impact of one or the other dying. But what so often they come into my office and ask is, how much insurance should I have? And I've never understood why they didn't ask that question before they bought the insurance instead of afterwards, because term insurance like any insurance, is a product that's covering the risk of something happening. So if it doesn't cover the risk, that's like buying insurance that's going to cover one car, one tire on your car, and you got four tires, and so, you know, what good does it do if you blow up all four tires? You've got to have the need analyzed. But it is true, it's a very good tool. There are many other money-wise reasons to buy a term policy, uh, it could be for the making the payments that are left on a mortgage or for uh, buying a deceased business partner's shares. There's a lot of ways you can use this term insurance. Does term insurance tend to, as a need-based um, financial planning tool, does it change much from the 20s and 30s to maybe your 50s and 60s? No, and that is a very good question because it doesn't change. The problem is there is either a need or there's not a need. Let's take it this way. Let's say you're in your 20s or 30s. You're a young married couple. Well, first of all, you're single. Okay, you don't need any insurance. So forget the insurance. Should I have a whole life or term? You don't need any insurance because if you die, your income Deprivation, the deprivation of your income is not going to affect anybody because you're not supporting anybody. But let's say that you're married and you have a child and you're in your 20s or 30s. Okay. You need to analyze what would be the, the, the need if God forbid I die and my young wife with my young child 
can't, you know, what do they need to live on? And so we need to compute that. And then if there's no investments to make that need, then that's the amount of insurance. Well, no, we have to compute the amount of insurance that could be then used for investments to produce that amount of income. Okay, so if there was a loss of income for one uh, of the breadwinners, mm-hmm. then they would have this need, i.e. maybe for a mortgage payoff or just... It'd be all of the all needs. Of It'd be for needs. groceries. It's for everything, all of okay. the living expenses. So that missed income to be replaced by a term of policy. Right. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and see, that situ- that uh, that approach is going to be the same for a person, whether they're in their 30s or their 50s or their 60s, but now I need to, to go one step further. Hopefully, there is light at the end of the tunnel when there is no need for any insurance. And that time would be when you are financially independent. For example, let's say that you are now in your 50s and you have accumulated $2 million and your financial planner has computed for you that that $2 million of investment portfolio could produce uh, $80,000 a year in income and your living expenses are $70,000 a year. Well, you're financially independent. You don't need any insurance. Is that point something, uh, that is called, or, or is what you call being self-insured? You are able to self-insure yourself. That's exactly right. Because if it's able, if the $2 million of investment portfolio could support the two of you, then God forbid one of you dies, the other has self-insured because they're fine. Okay. So what we do when we look at buying insurance, term insurance, is we look at where you're at today and what will be the growth of the investment portfolio with some other variables for the period of time between now and and, and that future point in time when we compute you will be financially independent. And let's say it looks like under the assumption we use, uh, maybe you can make it in 15 years. So in that case, I would recommend let's get term insurance that is a 20-year level term type of policy. And a level term policy, what does that do? A term policy of any kind is is an insurance policy that builds up no cash value, which is why it's so cheap. And then the premium, if it is a level term policy, the premium is also fixed for those number of years. If it's a 15-year level term policy, then you know it's a cheap flat fee for 15 years. But watch out because the 16th year, it might go up 10 times as high. But for that time where you're trying to accumulate those assets to try and get to the point to where you're financially independent, it's given you all of those years to where your cost for insurance hasn't gone up. Right. And so what you're doing during those years are you are you are planning on terminating that insurance you're planning that there will be a time when i will not need any insurance and so i'm going to buy the cheapest kind that will cover me from the period now until that point in time in the future and so that's where we use term insurance i uh, term insurance differs from other types of insurance in that the policy will generally be thought of as coming to an end. And you can get five-year term, 10-year term, 15-year term, 20-year term. Some companies even offer uh, 30-year term insurance, level term insurance. Well, that's interesting because on the other side is is the question as to whether or not one would ever need um, permanent insurance. Well, you know, I'm... 
I'm the type of financial planner that feels we should be very careful before we go and look at any type of permanent whole life insurance because number one, it's very expensive. And number two, the client buying it doesn't realize that they're going to be paying a large commission, which means that their cash value that they thought they were going to be accumulating in this policy isn't going to accumulate for a number of years because all of that assumed cash value buildup is being used to repay the broker the commission he got for selling you the policy when he got paid the commission up front. So I'm not saying there aren't certain cases when we should have it, but the time you should have whole life insurance is when you want an insurance policy that will cover you all the way until you die. You never expect to terminate that one. The inexpensive appeal uh, of the term policy, however, makes it an, uh, a really an essential component of sound financial planning. And uh, I've seen it used a lot of different ways. Uh, I know there are term policies and insurance policies, Deborah, uh, where they are offering these conversion features. When when there's a conversion feature, is it a conversion from a term policy to a, a permanent policy? Yes, and I per, I personally think that's a sales pitch that should be just ignored. Uh, that's not why we should be buying term insurance, expecting to convert it in the future. When people ask you if insurance is an uh, an investment tool, how do you answer that question? No, insurance is not an investment tool. Insurance is risk transfer. It's transferring risk from uh, from yourself over to an insurance company, and it's the same logic as when you buy insurance on your automobile. You hope that you will lose on this deal. You hope that uh, you'll never get any benefit from this policy whatsoever, and you'll keep paying the insurance company and not have to have any problem with a terrible car crash or fire insurance on your home. You're transferring the risk over to the home, the insurance company, and hope that you lose and the insurance company wins. Uh, it's risk transfer. And life insurance is the same way. You're transferring the risk, at least in term insurance for financial planning, you're transferring the risk that if I don't become financially independent in such and such a period of time, then my spouse will be covered because we didn't make it. Most term policies, by the way, don't pay out. Well, that would make sense, and that would be a benefit That's and right. a really good thing that most people don't prematurely die. That's right. Just like most home uh, fire insurance policies in your home don't pay right. out. That's so, exactly right. Well, it sounds funny to hear. It really is something where you hope you are a loser on that deal. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You hope you're a loser. <laughs> well, if someone is looking at whole life or permanent insurance as an investment, is that usually the first thing you can say is don't look at it for cash value that can accumulate? That's right. It's not an investment. Now, it may be there for – now, there is the story about estate tax transfer or protection, the money to pay the estate taxes, but that story is pretty much down the tubes. Uh, right now, you can you can get the first $10 million of estate passed <laughs> without any taxes. Now, it's true. We may have a change in our tax law in the next couple of years, but a lot of whole life insurance is sold uh, looking for the benefit of – of being able to have your heirs pay the estate taxes. And in that case, we use what's called an islet, a life insurance trust, an irrevocable life insurance trust should own the whole life policy. 
Well, it sounds like the topic is going to always be there for people to know when or not to buy these types of policies and when it's appropriate for them. That's right. Yeah. That is right. Well, um, there was a small little article. It didn't have a lot of uh, detail to it, but it uh, was about insurance again. And it said, honestly, what's the best policy? And while it didn't give a a lot of uh, details, it did go through a couple of examples of when it was a good idea to purchase a term versus purchasing a permanent policy. And I know we've covered some of these things already, but... um, I think the big thing to realize is looking at the pros and cons. Okay. If you look at the pro of term insurance, it's the cheapest way to transfer the risk and get the most death benefit for your dollar, but you should first analyze the need. All right. The pro of the whole life policy is that it will definitely pay off at death. The con on the whole life policy are the commissions, and that's the biggest con is that the commissions can be steep and the buildup of your savings is going to be very slow. So I think that's the way to end the discussion on whole life versus term. Well, if you have any questions, please give us a call at 860-WPTF, 860-9783, or 1-800-662-7979. You know, Debs, I... There is something that I don't think many people are aware of in the world of investments, and this is the matter of the ETFs. I I personally have been seeing more and more alerts on ETFs, and there was a, a, a chief executive officer of a major money management firm who feels, and I, I, I think I may agree with him, that ETFs are the next financial time bomb. You know, the exchange-traded funds are developing in a way similar to the shadow banking system that almost brought down the world's financial system in 2008. And ETFs are, they are, they may be moving in that same direction. In the last 10 years, they have doubled. They're growing so fast. My advice to the public is be very, very careful. And even if possible, stay away from the ETFs. I, they're very vulnerable for short selling, which means that they can be moving and being bought and sold with no cash. So just I'll leave it there, and um, let's take another caller. And I do believe we have a caller. Doris, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Yes, I have been told that since I cannot sell my home and I have a fairly large mortgage, uh-huh. that it is possible for me to have the deed signed over to the bank's mortgage company, saying, here, it's yours back, and be done with it. Of course, under the watchful eye and with the advice and counsel of a real estate attorney. But if I can't sell it and don't want foreclosure because I don't want any damage to my credit, what are the consequences Okay. Of doing that. That's a very good question. What you're talking about is a vehicle called deed in lieu of foreclosure or deed in lieu. And that's exactly right. Sometimes banks will allow that and sometimes they won't. If your bank will allow you to sign over a deed in lieu, that's a deed in lieu of foreclosure, yes. then basically you're telling the bank, I can't make the payments on this thing. And instead of me stopping the payments and you foreclosing, I'll just give you the house. That's the definition of a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You are deeding the house over to 
the person or the entity that you owe the money to, namely the bank. Mm -hmm. Now, how much is the size of the mortgage? How much do you owe? Two thirty-three and change. All right, so we and I can make the payments. It's simply that I don't want to remain here, and I can't sell it. Mm -hmm. And if worse comes to worst, I was told that this. All right, now let me be my only choice. That's exactly correct. Now let me explain to you what happens at that time. You will sign over a deed in lieu of foreclosure if the bank allows it. Mm -hmm. Okay. If the bank says no, then. They won't take that deed back. They will initiate foreclosure proceedings, and then they'll get it back anyway. But if they're nice enough to let you sign over a deed in lieu of foreclosure, mm -hmm. then as far as you're concerned, there has been no foreclosure and there's nothing on your credit. That's exactly right. Now let's go to see what else happens. The IRS now gets a notice that you received income of $233,000. And that income of $233,000 is going to go ahead and cost you approximately $93,000 of income taxes. So How you, can the IRS consider a total loss? Well, that's one of the unique things about our tax structure. Ah. The logic, and I'm not saying I agree with the logic, but the logic goes like this, that you have a debt right now. If you put down a minus $233,000 on a piece of paper, that's a minus. The only way for you to bring this down to a zero is to put a plus 233 next to it. If you have a minus 233,000 and a plus $233,000, now you have zero debt. Mm -hmm. If you go ahead and tell the IRS that you no longer have any debt, which is true, mm -hmm. then the IRS says, well, you must have received $233,000 of income to wipe it out. And that is called the forgiveness of debt. As far as our income tax system is concerned, forgiveness of debt is considered income, and you will have to report on your income tax return income of $233,000, and the taxes on that will be about $93,000. I can't afford it. That's called phantom income. So you need to be very aware that, yes, you can deed over and I've had many clients come to me in the past few years mm -hmm. who have had millions of dollars of real estate with millions of dollars of mortgages, and they'd like to go ahead, and sometimes we call the banks, and they are willing to take deed backs, mm -hmm. deed in lieu of foreclosure, and sometimes they're not. But on the other hand, when they will, we have to always analyze the tax impact. Now, there are ways that we can work with that, but you have to accept the fact that there will be a $233,000 income generated if you walk away from that debt. If I just walked away from it, and they auctioned off the house. My understanding is that, let's say they got $150,000. Mm -hmm. I would be responsible for the difference between one hundred and fifty and two thirty-three. Right. Or, if they take a deed in lieu of foreclosure and they sell it, then the difference is what you would report as taxable income. There's no way out of this. No. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> You're welcome, Doris. I'm sorry to give you the bad news. It is bad. Very bad. <laughs> Call Thank my you. office if you'd like to set up an appointment. I can show you a few other strategies around that, but there's nothing on the surface that I can tell you other than just that. That's the tax law. And that number to call is 872-7000. That's USA 7000 in Raleigh. Thank you. Bye -bye. All right. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000.
That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.